0: Welcome to the MarTech
1: Podcast. Today, we're going to discuss using content to make and create meaningful customer experiences. Joining us is Katie Miserani, who is the founding partner at Worthwhile Digital, which is a full service digital agency that helps their clients with branding and content strategies to fully integrate their marketing campaign and product launches. And today, Katie is going to tell us about her strategy for crafting a marketing message that resonates and translates across platforms. Okay. Here's our interview with Katie Miserini, the founding partner of Worthwhile Digital. Katie, welcome to the MarTech podcast.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: I'm excited to talk about a topic that is near and dear to my heart, the connection of building a brand to actually marketing a product and service. You're a pro at this. Tell everybody about your experience and how you became such a vet at the connection between brand and marketing.
2: Yeah, I've worked at the intersection of marketing communications in just about every type of organization. So I've done B2C, B2B, professional services, nonprofit marketing. Most recently, I was the senior director of marketing at Sheryl Sandberg's foundation, the organization built on the ideas in the book Lean In. So I've got a lot of experience taking concepts and then translating them into something we can actually market to get out into the world, getting the widest distribution that we can.
1: So you've had some great experience. You've worked with some high profile companies, some high profile people, and now you're off on your own agency. Talk to me about your process for doing the foundational brand building. What are you doing to sort of craft a message that will resonate with a company's target market?
2: I really think about this in a three-step process. And I think this is true across all of the various industries that I've worked. It really comes down to three things. Step one, what do we want people to believe, know, or do? Step two, what information supports that message? And step three, how do we get this message out to the right audience?
1: So let's take that step by step.
2: Yeah. So let's talk about the first step. Organizations always invest in marketing because they're trying to get someone to believe, know, or do something. What that something is could vary. So it's often buy my product, try my service. It could also be something about changing how you think about achieving a goal or solving a problem. So if you think about a company like Lyft coming onto the market, they didn't just offer a transportation solution. They had to convince people to try a new way of thinking about that transportation solution. So that required a philosophy shift that they were marketing. Or in the case of nonprofits, we're often focused on either fundraising, so support my cause financially, or on changing your behavior reducing your carbon footprint, eliminating food waste, things like that. In the case of Lean In, we were focused on interrupting gender bias as it impacts women across the world. And to our credit, I would say that marketers generally do this really well. We know what we want folks to do, whether it's click a button on an ad or to try a product or service. But I think it's important to make sure you're really clear on what you want people to believe, know, or do from that overall corporate marketing perspective but also more granularly so that at the outset of each campaign or product or feature launch, or even at each stage of the funnel, you know exactly what that is because it's going to change as you move down that marketing funnel.
1: There's a marketing philosophy that I put a lot of stock into, which is the Start With Why by Simon Sinek, which is the idea that the mission or or what you want someone to know or believe or do, I guess, should focus from the reason why you're doing something, and then you work your way out from why am I doing this to what am I doing to how am I doing it? How do you feel about the approach? You're saying that there's three different things no believer do. How do you rationalize that with getting your company's mission across or why you're trying to achieve something?
2: Yeah, that's a great point. I think in my mind, they ladder up really similarly. So If your company's mission at the top line, you know, at Lean In, our mission was to help women achieve their ambitions. And I think we used that as a barometer for all of our campaigns that came under it. We wanted to say, if our mission is to help women achieve their ambitions, every single marketing campaign we did had to resonate with that mission, but it might have a slightly different goal. So sometimes we focused on men And our outreach was actually all about men and their role in helping women achieve their ambitions. Sometimes it was focused on women. Sometimes it was focused on companies. But it was all in service of that broader mission, which is the kind of corporate level marketing that I was talking about. You want people to believe, nowhere do something at this high level. And then you drill down to, okay, so at this stage with this product, with this particular feature, what are we trying to do to help people do that top line thing?
1: So it seems like the construct that you're talking about, the step one, believe, know, or do, is something that applies on a marketing campaign level with this effort, with this campaign, what are we trying to accomplish? What do we need them to believe, know, or do, as opposed to the overall brand architecture is why are we doing this? How are we doing it? What are we doing it? And so to me, in my head, there is the fundamental overarching brand mission. And then you use the construct of, you know, with each campaign, what do we want them to believe, know, or do, and we take it from there.
2: Yeah. And I think you can also ladder all of your tactics under that main thing. One of my least favorite things that marketers and marketing teams do is create content for content's sake. But I think if you're really clear on what you're trying to get people to believe Nora do within each campaign, you're going to create content that speaks to that specific action that you're trying to drive.
1: So let's move on to step number two. Remind me what step number two is.
2: So step number two, and this is where I think we often don't give enough time or attention, is what information supports our message?
1: So what do you mean by information?
2: This can be a lot of different things. I think two of the most effective types of information that we have at our fingertips as marketers are research and then customer stories.
1: Research and customer stories. It feels like there would be more in terms of the type of information that you could present. You know, I'm thinking of sales collateral, you know, it's not necessarily research. A lot of the time that's you coming up with copy that you want someone to believe, and it's not necessarily researched. It's just how you're positioning. How do you factor in the positioning and argument and bullet type content?
2: Well, interestingly enough, SurveyMonkey did this research recently that said that 63% of consumers think marketers are selling them things they don't need. That hurts, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: that's also probably true, but that just speaks to the general lifestyle that we live in the area that we live in, that sure. people are just thinking about consumption.
2: But also, they found in that same study that 80% of customers find a customer testimonial to be more trustworthy. So I think even when it comes to something like sales collateral, where you're presenting your positioning, and it's very through the lens of what you want people to believe, know, or do... I think it's important to ground that in information that the audience is going to care about. And that's where I think research and customer stories can be really powerful. In the realm of research, I think there's a couple ways that you can go about collecting this that might resonate a bit more with the examples that you were giving. There's obviously research that's available in trusted sources like HBR or produced through universities, various organizational psychologists like Marcus Buckingham just did a great piece on Teams that's really popular. Or Adam Grant often has great content you can mine that for data that's going to be really interesting to the people that you're trying to speak to. But you can also do your own research. And this is a lot more accessible and a lot easier to do than it used to be. So take, for example, you want to roll out a new feature that is in your CRM that you think is going to help salespeople save a ton of time. Before you roll that out more broadly, you could do kind of a closed beta of that same feature, do a pre-rollout survey to people a post-rollout survey after they've been using it for a set amount of time. And through that data, you're going to get a really powerful use case story that you can use to say, we think it's going to save you time, then gets transformed into this has saved salespeople three hours a week or whatever ends up showing.
1: From a B2B perspective, I get where you're going. The thing that sticks out to me, and I'm not sure why this is the example, but what used to be one of my favorite clothing brands, and I'll preface this with, you might not be super familiar with the positioning of men's clothing, so I'll try to walk you through it. Bonobos it was a company that was one of the first online-only retailers for men's pants and expanded into a variety of other clothes. And when they got bought by Walmart, they changed their marketing from being focused on more aspirational images, showing people that were having a good time out on the golf course or going to work wearing the clothes to customer stories with people that I'd never heard of, that I don't really care about. On the flip side, there's a brand that I really love, Miles Apparel, which is men's athletic wear. And they're not telling me about how professional athletes are wearing their shorts. They're just showing people that are using the shorts, doing the activities that I wanna be doing, looking healthy and fit is something that I'd like to do more of. So let's call it an aspirational image. That is not using a testimonial. They're they're not presenting research. Isn't there another format of marketing where you present information that isn't testimonials or research?
2: I think I would categorize that as something like aspirational storytelling. The idea of these are healthy, active people doing things that I would want to be doing. But in my mind, that kind of gets grouped into the customer storytelling piece where You're really digging into what that person's experience is going to be like imagining themselves wearing your clothes or out on that golf course, having a good time, that kind of thing.
1: I guess what you're saying is your construct is you as a marketer need to know what you're trying to accomplish in step one. Number two, you have to do your research and understand your customers in step two. So research and testimonials. And where you're calling it testimonials, I am thinking of this is the marketing vehicle for how you're presenting information. You have to use a testimonial to get your message across because that's effective. And I'm thinking testimonials aren't always appropriate. When Bonobos went to testimonials only, all of a sudden I was like, their marketing stinks. I don't want to buy these clothes anymore. Nothing personal to anybody who does marketing at Bonobos. There's a third stage here, and I'm getting into that. So tell us what the third stage is. You're talking about how to collect your information and what to look at to understand how to present information to your consumers. Step three, what is it?
2: Once we know what we want people to believe, know, or do, we figured out the information that's going to support that statement, whether it's aspirational storytelling, it's customer stories, it's data that we've collected or research that's existing in the market. The final step is how do we get this information to the right audience? So essentially, we're talking about audience-driven channel selection.
1: So walk me through the process for figuring out what the right channel and what the right message is.
2: I think to bring this concept to life, I'll share an example of one of the most successful campaigns that we ran in my time at Lean In. It was called Together Women Can, and it earned hundreds of millions of impressions in digital and earned media. So if we go through the process, step one, what do we want people to believe, know, or do? The big idea behind this campaign was that we wanted to dispel the myth that the biggest enemy to any ambitious woman in a workplace was another ambitious woman. A lot of people call this the myth of the catty woman in the office. We wanted people to know two things. It's not true. And that there's a ton of power in continuing to actively promote and support other women at work. So we're clear on what we know, what we want people to believe, know, or do. Step two, what information supports this message? And here we used a mix of both existing research that other folks had done and also our own. So we found a bunch of great studies on the S&P 1500, for example, that showed that compared with male chief executives, when a woman was made CEO, other women had a better chance of making it into senior management. So that directly contradicts this myth of the caddy woman, right? We also found a study that said that when women join a corporate board, there's a better chance that other women will rise into executive positions in that company. We wrapped all this up in a great op-ed that Cheryl ran in the New York Times on our launch day. So it was this fantastic, really meaty thing. We also added some data from primary research we did with McKinsey & Company every year called Women in the Workplace. You can see the report at womenintheworkplace.com if you're interested. But it's the largest study of its kind. It pulls together all this pipeline data and data on employee attitudes about gender in the workplace from hundreds of U.S. employers. So we had this really rich and meaty data source. But then when we get to step three, how do we get this information to the right audience? We essentially had this data-rich research paper about women and their impact on other women in the workplace. But we knew that we needed to make it a little bit more interesting to really break through the noise in a crowded media landscape, right? So we started asking, where are the women? And one of the answers that we came up with is they're following their favorite celebrities online. So because we were this nonprofit that had this incredible reach, we were able to collect celebrity stories about women supporting other women. We teamed up with the incredible team at Makers, which is an AOL documentary property that's focused on women. Our producer was Elizabeth Bonnell, she's amazing. And she and I flew around the country and filmed with celebrities talking about the women who supported them in their careers. So
1: Now I have to ask you, was this the best case study because you got to fly around the country know. with somebody who shoots documentaries and meet a bunch of celebrities? Because it sounds pretty awesome to me.
2: I know. It was fantastic. It was really fun. But I do think it shows both sides where it's like we had to have the research to really drive the impact we wanted to have. But then those kind of shiny objects were attracting the attention and then that would lead to the clicks through.
1: That's a great example. And I I see how that walks through the methodology of figure out what you want to say, put your research together and find your channels. Not everybody has Sheryl Sandberg sitting in their corner. I'm sure she has lots of friends, but I cannot go to her when I want to launch a new marketing campaign for the MarTech podcast. What do you do when you don't have that level of access and you have to be a little bit more resourceful with what marketing channels you have at your disposal?
2: That's a great question. And I remember when we were actually doing this campaign, it was something I was thinking about myself. I was like, how are the skills I'm developing here going to be at all relatable in my career hereafter where I'm not going to have this level of access? But what I've found since founding Worthwhile Digital and working with so many great tech companies is even though you might not have Selena Gomez that you're able to tap to be in your video you do have influencers in your network, whether they are the board members that are highly followed in your community or a mentor or partner that you've worked with. They might be other partner companies that are in the space that people really respect and admire. And so I think sometimes it's about rethinking who the influencers are in your sphere that you can work with. Another great example from the B2C world is that we used to work at Tiny Prints, the online stationery store. We had a great... Program where in order to get that celebrity glow, we actually produced holiday cards for a variety of charities, often with a celebrity at the center. So I remember doing cards for Robin Hood, which is Gwyneth Paltrow's number one charity. We would design these cards, put them up on the site. All the proceeds from sales of those cards would go directly to that foundation. So that enabled us to get a lot of brand glow out of the celebrities who were supporting the charities that we were also supporting. But it also was kind of the beginning of a corporate social responsibility program that really fed a lot of our top line goals in terms of getting growth and establishing the brand as something that these people wanted to be a part of.
1: Going back to the process of figuring out how to build a brand that resonates, a message that resonates. One of the things that I've always done when I'm doing brand consultations as part of my consulting practice is do my best to talk to the customer and ask them where are the places that they're looking for the type of information that my company is presenting. Where are you integrating customer research and how much are you getting and building feedback loops to understand not only what information you want to push out, but who is likely going to be receiving it and where they want to see it?
2: A hundred percent. I think we have shifted a little from the information economy to being in the feedback economy because anything that can be known will be known about your brand. So whether or not you're listening to your customers, they're posting on Yelp, on TripAdvisor, they're leaving reviews on G2 Crowd and all these other sites. So I think you would be remiss not to be tapping into the wealth of feedback that we're getting from customers all the time. I also think on the B2C side having customer conversations is one of the clearest ways to really distill those customer stories and the examples that you want to be using to show value in your company. So I have a couple clients right now who are going through a pretty big messaging transition and trying to figure out where they fit in the market. And I think the number one source of information are those customer conversations where we say, here's what we think the value is to your organization. Tell us how you're really using this product. Tell us what value it's driving. Tell us what you would be doing if we had to rip this out tomorrow. How would you survive? What true value is it driving? And having those conversations one-on-one is great. What we're doing at a lot of those clients is starting with the one-on-one conversations and really deep diving, and then architecting a broader messaging survey out into the market that tests those assumptions.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. You have a much more formalized process for building and crafting brand narratives and stories. When I've done my consulting work focused on building brands, I have essentially, let's call it a two or three stage process. But the first process is understanding the company, right? interviewing the internal stakeholders and trying to get a sense of the pulse, the narrative that they're talking and make sure that everybody is speaking the same language and understanding what their products, their service, who they think they're going after and how they're describing themselves and truly what they want to be. And this is much as about understanding the personality of the company as it is getting the definitions of the brand. The second part is mapping that against what their customers or prospects think to try to figure out how they're thinking about solving a problem, what are the criteria that they care about, what are the pain points they're trying to solve for, and where they're looking for that information. So as much as your process of figuring out what you want to say, figuring out what research supports it, and then where you can go distribute that message, I do think that is important to constantly understand who you are, the true identity of the company and the people that are building this message, and reflect that against who you're trying to get that message out to, to make sure that there is that resonance, that you're speaking the same language and that you're solving their pain points. How do you feel about mapping the identity of the company against the customer personas?
2: I think that's crucial if you really want your messages to resonate. You're exactly right that the first half of this process, the first three steps that I outlined are really about establishing what we are trying to say and the way that we wanna say it. The next step would be to map it against the different personas that you know that you're serving. So as an example, One of my clients has a variety of users within their software. Again, it's a B2B software. The first user was a data scientist. That was really obvious. We had built the platform for data scientists. That was always who our number one persona was going to be. But there was a second user who was a data engineer. And that's a slightly different persona. So the data scientist is actually doing the analysis and running the numbers and trying to answer questions for the company. The data engineer is almost agnostic to what's going into the pipes, but they're responsible for making sure those pipes are working and that they're giving the optimal output for the organization. And that person was severely underserved in the marketing that we were producing. So by identifying that second persona, we could say... What we want the data engineer to believe, know, or do is going to be slightly different from what we want the data scientist to believe, know, or do. And the cohesion that you're talking about is mapping that top line corporate marketing prerogative into each of the distinctive personas.
1: I think that that is absolutely the key to creating a brand that resonates. It is not just about what you want to say as much of the research you can do and the channel optimization, if you're not mapping to what the prospective customers want to hear and solving a problem that they have, you're shooting in the dark. And so I'm glad to hear that we absolutely agree on that. And I think that's a great place for us to wrap up for today. So that wraps up this episode of the MarTech Podcast. Thanks to Katie Miserani, the founding partner at Worthwhile Digital for joining us. In part two of our interview, which we're going to publish tomorrow, Katie is going to tell us about her tactical advice for using own channels for testing messaging. If you can't wait until our next episode and you'd like to learn more about Katie, you can click on the link to her LinkedIn profile in our show notes. You can send her a tweet at Katie Mizorini, K-A-T-I-E-M-I-S-E-R-A-N-Y, or you can visit her company's website, which is worthwhiledigital.com. A couple of links I want to tell you about in our show notes. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while you were listening to this podcast, just head over to martechpod.com, where we have summaries of all of our episodes and contact information for our guests. If you're a subscriber to the Martech podcast, thanks for being a member of our community. We always want to hear from you, so we created benjshap.com slash question, where you could send us your topic suggestions or your marketing questions, which we'll answer live on our show. Of course, you could always reach out on social media. My handle is benjshap, B-E-N-J-S-H-A-P dot And if you haven't subscribed yet and you want a daily stream of marketing and technology knowledge in your podcast feed, in addition to part two of our conversation with Katie Mizorini, the founding partner of Worthwhile Digital, we're going to publish an episode every day during the work week. So hit the subscribe button in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed tomorrow morning. Or if you'd prefer to have our content delivered to your inbox, we also have a once a week newsletter with links to our audio players, episode summaries, and the contact information for our guests. To subscribe, go to benjshap.com slash newsletter. Okay, that's it for today. But until next time, my advice is to just focus on keeping your customers happy.